Uh, many of you know uh, I've lived in Kentucky pretty much my whole life, except for seminary, uh, a few years of graduate school. And uh, my grandparents on my dad's side went to UK. Uh, my dad went to UK. Both sides of my family goes eight generations back in Kentucky. So Kentucky's a big deal. Before Kentucky, uh, for Kentucky, before Kentucky kicks, you know what was cool? Uh, that was Kentucky was a big thing in my house. Uh, so it was more than just UK. It was just the state. There was this commitment to place in my family as I was growing up. So yes, it included UK. And included UK basketball, and uh, I can remember as a as a child that Jamal Mashburn was my hero. He's the first kind of UK icon uh, in my imagination. And then when uh, I was in high school, uh, I had a friend who's a few years older than me. And uh, when I was in high school, UK won two championships. And uh, my friend who's a few years older than me was a tutor for the basketball team, and he was one of the few people who got to live uh, in the basketball players' dorm, the Wildcat Lodge. And so when he lived there, he said, "Hey." Uh, why don't you come down for the weekend? And so got to go down for the weekend, and I was stoked. I knew I was going to get to see the players, and I did. They are in the lobby. They were coming in and out of the dorm with us. Uh, it got kind of awkward when we were sharing shower stalls next to each other. Uh, it was a little too close. But it was all these icons, even though I was in high school, they were just a couple years older than me, I still stood in awe. And I wondered, would I continue to stand in awe when I was a student? Of course I did. Tayshaun Prince was there all four years I was there. And I remember, like, you could see him walking in the library, and no matter where you were in the library, you could see every single person walking, watching him as he walked by. He'd walk in anywhere he was. You'd just see people walking. People would be in class with Tayshaun Prince, and you would know about it. They'd say, guess what? I got a class this semester with Tayshaun. Well, all of that was uh, good and well, but I was unprepared uh, for the amount of fanboyness that was going to come out in me in years to come. When I was 31, uh, that was 2012, uh, UK won the national championship. 2012, uh, I was doing campus ministry at UK. And in 2012, there was a, uh, a guy on UK's team named Anthony Davis. And one of the things I did as doing college ministry is I ate a lot of meals with college students. And one of the places that college students ate a lot of meals at the student center. The student center was close to the Wildcat Lodge. And so it was not uncommon uh, to see basketball players in the student center. And so for that year, I always had a Sharpie in my pocket every time I went to the student center because I was prepared to get an autograph and a selfie, by the way, from Anthony Davis. And I went for lunch after lunch after lunch after lunch, never saw him. And then one day he walked in. And uh, I thought the only way that this dream would not become a reality if he walked into the student center would be as if he declined. I was very wrong, because when he walked into the student center and 43 students let him cut them in line so that he could get his Chick-fil-A, my mouth was on the floor. I was stuck to my seat. I couldn't move. I just watched him. I watched him cut those 43 students. I, I saw him grab his food, and I saw him walk out the door, and I missed my opportunity. That was my one shot, and I missed it. Why was it? Why couldn't I get out of my seat? Why was my mouth on the floor? Why did I miss my opportunity? Well, it was because I was frozen. I was frozen in the presence of greatness. See, here it is. There's this six foot, 11 inch person who wins the national championship with UK, who goes on to be the first pick in the NBA draft. Currently, he's one of the five best players in the NBA. He just won an NBA Finals championship this past year. 
What happened that day is I experienced what one religious philosopher terms numinous awe. See, numinous awe happens when the divine is an encountered and our response is a mixture of mystery, fascination, and terror. Now, it might seem silly that I had a religious encounter with Anthony Davis, but I really did. Even though I was a 31-year-old male who's married with two kids and I was in total fanboy mode, I had a religious experience that day. And the same thing might happen to you. Maybe if you came across Wendell Berry, maybe you come across Barack Obama, maybe you come across Joanna Gaines, maybe you come across Taylor Swift, a new Minnesota might happen to you. And what Rudolf Otto, the, the author, the, the religious philosopher, what he says is that this is common across all religions. And we know it's true in Judaism and Christianity because it happens in the Old Testament time and time again as we see people fall down before the Lord. We see Moses fall down at Mount Sinai, Exodus 34. We see Balaam fall down before an angel of the Lord in Numbers 22. You might not know who Balaam is, but Balaam was riding on a donkey. And the donkey stopped three times on the path as they were on their their way to their destination. Every time the donkey stopped, it was because the donkey could see an angel of the Lord. And every time the donkey stopped, Balaam would strike the donkey to get up and we're going to keep moving. And finally, after the third time, the donkey preaches, opens his mouth and talks at Balaam, his owner, and says, hey, Balaam, I'm seeing an angel of the Lord in front of you. And this might sound like a cartoon to you, but this is in the scripture. You might, you might have been around the scripture a long time and never seen this story. Numbers 22. And after the donkey tells Balaam, there's an angel of the Lord there, Balaam sees the angel of the Lord, and guess what he does? He falls down. Second Chronicles chapter 20, all of Judah bows down before the Lord. Psalm 95, God's people are called to come, worship, bow down, and kneel before the Lord, their maker. So what about the New Testament? When you get to the New Testament, does the mystery and the fascination and the terror drop out? Does it get postponed? Because now we have Jesus, and Jesus comes as a babe in swaddling clothes, in a manger, born to peasants. There's nothing about that that sounds terror or mysterious or fascinating. It sounds normal, sounds ordinary, sounds accessible. And then you keep looking at the life of Jesus, and he lives the next 30 years, and we know almost nothing about him except that he's a carpenter, normal. So how can the common and the ordinary that we see in the person of Jesus exist alongside mystery, fascination, and terror? Does the New Testament have room for bowing down? It does, actually. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, you've got the wise men. And the wise men, when they come up upon Jesus, what do they do? They fall down. So here we have it. We have God in the flesh as a baby who's just as holy as God himself in the Old Testament. So how are we going to deal with the holiness of God in Jesus? Let's look at Luke chapter 5. That's our text for tonight. 
Uh, I'll read the first 11 verses. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. All right, think about it. You're a fisherman. It's your profession. You've done it your whole life. And so when you have a fishless outing, surely you can say that you had a fishless outing wasn't due to your lack of skill, but it was due to the conditions, right? You've had this fishless outing where you've been out all night. You're tired. You're hungry. You're probably a little frustrated. And while you're tired, angry, and frustrated at not catching any fish, you've got a carpenter who walks up to you and says, why don't you go back out fishing? How would you respond to that? Well, right here we see Peter doesn't really argue a bit. He says, I'll go right back out there. Why is that? Why wouldn't Peter argue with him? Well, it's because when, by the time you get to Luke chapter 5, there's some stuff that's been happening out in public in Jesus' ministry. See, in Luke chapter 4, you see Jesus, he's, he's casting out demons, he's healing sick people, and he's preaching. And verse 15 of chapter 4 says that Jesus was glorified by all. So, Jesus' reputation has preceded him. Peter's intrigued. He's intrigued enough to not just listen, but to do exactly what Jesus says. Now, Jesus is already in his boat. And so when he throws the nets out and he pulls the fish back in, he's pulling them in at the feet of Jesus. And the nets are beginning to break apart. There's so many fish in them. There's so many fish in them that they've got to, he's got to get help from the other boat, the second boat. Peter and Jesus are in one boat and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are in the other. And Peter's nets fill up his own boat and James and John's. It was an incredible haul of fish. Now, if you were Peter, what would you do after such a huge haul? I'll tell you what I would do. I'd be wanting to get Jesus under contract. I mean, Jesus just helped me have the best haul I've had in a long time. I'd be wanting to get something in writing. I'd want to say, hey, Jesus, if you'll meet me here at 6 a.m., we'll make three trips back and forth. We'll knock off before lunch. 
Let's split this 50-50. I might even go 60-40 with you. Let's get this in ink. Is this what you would do? It's what I would do. But maybe you don't think like that. Maybe business isn't your thing. Maybe you'd just be like, man, I'm just so glad that I got some fish. Jesus, let's hug it out. And how about you come over to my house and we'll have a fish fry. Maybe you think you're kind of spiritual. You get some, you know that Jesus has got something special about him. You pull in the fish and you think you start singing. You start, you think you start saying, we adore you. We love you. We magnify your name. But friends, brother and sister, I don't think you would sing. I don't think you'd have a fish fry. And I certainly don't think you would get Jesus under contract. I think you would do exactly what Peter did. I think you would do exactly what Balaam did, exactly what the wise men did. I think you'd fall down at Jesus' feet. Now, this is the only time that people fall down before Jesus is kind of an odd time. Like, what seems so holy? I mean, what, there, what is there to be scared of? By a haul of fish. Well, Mark chapter 4, something happens. There's a big storm that comes up on the lake. The disciples are out there and they don't know what to do with the storm. They're really afraid that they're going to be thrown off the ship and they're going to drown in the midst of this storm. Meanwhile, Jesus is in the bow of the boat. He's asleep. They wake him up. Jesus commands the storm to be still. The storm is still. And they said they were afraid of the storm, but after the storm, they were greatly afraid. Why would you be more afraid after the storm than before? Because you just encountered the holiness of God. That's why. In other words, the presence of God is scarier than a storm. So when you stand in the presence of the Almighty, there is this sense of terror that washes over you. It is traumatic. Yeah, there might be an element of fascination going on, but it also hurts. It leaves you in pain. There's dread about it. Why is that? Well, it's because you're put face to face that, you're, that, 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 that the other is superlative. You come face to face with your own sense of lack. And that's why Peter says, depart from me. I am a sinner. Now here you've got it. You've got just Jesus and Peter in the boat. Our text says that they're out in deep water. You get the sense that Peter's stuck. He can't go anywhere. That he really would jump out of the boat if he could. But he can't. Peter's now in the boat and he's got to dwell with the holy. He's got to deal with his sin. He's got to come face to face face with the pain of being a sinner. Because, brother and sister, it, it is unpleasant to be near God. But I bet if I put in front of you, just like before I started studying this week, if you put in front of me, if I gave you 50 words and one of them was unpleasant, and I asked you to circle 10, you probably wouldn't circle unpleasant, and neither would have I. Some of that's due to what we've been exposed to. See, at every Hallmark, you'll find a couple books about God. You might see them in the line at Walmart as you're walking out. And you know what I've noticed about these books? A lot of them say, be near God, close to God. They're all pastel covers. They've all got airbrushed authors. 
A lot of them got stained glass windows with some sunbeams coming through. There's these warm, toasty, goopy feelings when we think about being near God. But then we see Luke chapter 5, we see Peter's confession, and it just crushes that whole caricature. What Luke chapter 5 does is it tells you that getting near God might make you feel worse about yourself. And what we see in the scriptures is that if you've not had any conflict, if you've not had any trauma in coming near God, you may not have encountered a real God. And for some of us, we've had this trauma, we've had this conflict in meeting God. And maybe at some point after that, you begin to sense that this holy one that you've encountered, the divine, the one who's given you a sense of terror, you've come to discover that this holy one is interested in you. What if the one who is superlative wants to be with you? What if the one who is superlative wants to get in the boat of your life? How would you feel? What would you do? I think you would do what James, John, and Peter did here. You'd commit to him your whole life. What you would do is that your soul's appetite would be quenched for the first time. And so James and John and Peter, they leave their boats right there on the shore, and they've got no idea what's about ready to happen. For the next three years, what Jesus would do is that he would confirm his holiness over and over and over again. And what Peter, James, and John would do, particularly Peter, they would confirm their sin over and over and over again. And if that was the pattern that took place, Jesus' holiness continued to be confirmed, their sin continued to be confirmed, you would expect Jesus to cut them out. You would expect Peter's shame to be so overwhelming that he would eventually tuck tail, run, and hide from Jesus. And if that's what you would expect, then you'd be working with a non-gospel framework. A non-gospel framework, its overriding principle is that Obedience is rewarded and sin is punished. But what happens if you work with a gospel framework? What would happen? You would see what we see in John chapter 21. John 21, the very last chapter of the gospel of John, Peter is dealing with his shame once again. He's denied Jesus three times after he said he wouldn't. Jesus has died. And all the times passed when Peter had blown it. He'd be at, he, he and Jesus would be able to go back to one another and they'd be able to do some repair. But now Jesus has died. How in the world are they going to do the repair if Jesus is dead? Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe there's a conversation you wish you were able to have with someone who's died and you've been left lingering. This is the way Peter felt. And when Peter got depressed, what he would do is that he'd go fishing. And he goes fishing. He's fishing one night. He can't catch anything, and he hears a voice from shore. And the voice from shore says, cast your nets out on the other side of the boat. Peter puts his nets out on the other side of the boat, and guess what happens? He catches more fish than he could possibly imagine. And that's when it clicks with him. But this time, instead of him saying, depart from me, what Peter does is that he takes everything off but his underwear, and he jumps into the water, And he swims to Jesus. 
See, here's the truth. Getting near God is worse than being far away. You don't want to be near God. What you want is that you want to get into God. And that's what happens right here with Peter. And it blows all of our categories, doesn't it? We think it's the pious who have a shot at the kingdom. We think it's people who have something to offer Jesus. People with money or intelligence or achievements or experience or influence. Yet it's just the opposite. Because Jesus can really only work with people who are warts and all, who are willing to encounter a real God and all of his holiness. And they're willing to come face to face with their inability, with their brokenness, and with their sin. Their confession of sin really becomes the prerequisite for his kingdom. It becomes their resume. You guys know the last uh, several months, uh, we, 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 had, we had this period of officer nominations where deacons and elders were nominated. You guys nominated them. They've been being trained. And a lot of the follow-up conversations, that when, when we went to them and said, how is it that you're feeling about this? Almost all of them, when, when, we, when, the, we, when I would say, hey, you've been nominated for office. Are you willing to go through training? Almost all of them would say, I just don't think I'm qualified. And every time I went, dead in the water, now you're qualified. Now there's some more work to do. But a lot of times we think we're getting out of it, that God can't use us because of our insufficiency. But that actually is the very thing that opens up the possibility for him to be the actor. You see it right here in this passage. Instead of being fishermen, they become fishers of men. So how about you? How have you been interacting with Jesus? Has Jesus been your consultant? <laughs> You've been trying to get tips for life. How to make your life work. He made Peter's life work, didn't he? I mean, he got him all kind of fish. And I've seen this happen a lot as a pastor. People come, they want God to help because they're in crisis in their marriage. They're going through infertility. They can't find a job. They've got a health issue and they want Jesus to help them. And a lot of times Jesus does help them. But then they go back to their old ways. Why is that? Because they've not faced the holiness of God. They've not had the trauma. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've been writing yourself off. You just think you're too broken. You're too sinful. You've messed up too many times. You're too inferior. You're too inept. There's no way that God could love you. Well, eventually, what's going to happen to you is that you're just going to bail. And you're not going to have anything to do with Jesus because your shame is just too overwhelming. But those of us who have had the traumatic experience, we've had the other side of that happen too. We've had Jesus whisper into our ears, I know that I'm holy. I know that you're a sinner. But I love you. And when that happens, your life changes forever. 